basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. With 40 years' experience in the space sector, Serco offers a full range of operational and engineering services. Through long-standing partnerships like the one Serco enjoys with the European Space Agency, Serco contributes to programs like Copernicus and Onda, supporting open data and user experience. With best-in-class capabilities in Earth observation, Serco offers a wide range of space and ground support from data capture to data handling to data exploitation. For more information on Serco's space capabilities, visit circle.com backslash na backslash canada hello i'm ian christie and this is terranauts today on terranauts i would like to present a special episode that i call themistocles in the space program uh, this is a theme that i have talked about and written about before but i wanted to insert this episode here because we have just about reached the point in our story of nasa's project mercury where President John F. Kennedy is going to make a speech at Rice University, and that speech is really related to this episode. So, we are also approaching, by the way, the 60-year anniversary of President Kennedy's address to Congress, where he committed the United States to going to the surface of the moon. But before we talk about those words spoken 60 years ago, I want to talk about some words that were spoken 2,500 years ago by a politician named Themistocles in a city named Athens, a Hellenic polis on the shores of the Aegean Sea. The year was 493 BC, and the city of Athens at the time was a middle-sized uh, city, one of a number of Hellenic urban centers in what we now call Greece, and it was actually pretty unremarkable. If it stood out at all, it was arguably because all of the adult male citizens participated in the governance of the city. It was a democracy, which was an innovation. The early Athenian version of democracy was a bit different than the way we experience it today, though. It was a bit more direct, for sure. Athenians met, maybe as much as three times a week, in an assembly. And here, they annually elected their magistrates, but also voted on various proposals brought before the assembly on the day. There were approximately 30,000 citizens divided into four economic classes, the bulk of the citizens were in the lowest class, and although there were rules that distributed political power unevenly amongst the classes, for instance, the lowest class, which comprised about 20,000 citizens, could not hold political office, still every citizen of Athens got a chance to vote on the issues of the day. There were no kings or emperors, only citizens. So, as I was saying, in 493, Athens was an up-and-coming Hellenic city experimenting with a somewhat unique form of government. It was not the leader of the Hellenic world in the way that we are used to thinking of it, and its experiment with democracy was pretty much just that at the time, an interesting experiment, and not yet recognized as effectively the birth of a major political ideology. But Themistocles, in some ways, wanted to change all that. When he got up in front of his citizens on that day on the hilltop outside of Athens in 493, he had a vision of taking Athens to a new place, 
a place that no Greek city had gone before, a place that the vast majority of his fellow citizens, at least the ones who had managed to avoid hearing him talk about it, had not ever really thought of going. He wanted to turn Athens into the greatest maritime power of the day, greater than any of the other Greek cities, greater even than the mighty Persian Empire. How? Well, you see, at that moment in time, the voters in Athens were facing a challenge. It was a good challenge, but still a challenge. You see, Athens owned a silver mine, and normally it produced enough to fund public projects and put some money in the treasury. Well, this year, it had struck a particularly rich vein, and there was a substantial surplus that needed to be distributed. And so the citizens of Athens were meeting to decide where to spend their windfall. Most of those assembled probably thought they would just decide to share the proceeds according to some agreed-to formula. Many had probably already decided how they'd spend their share, estimated to be about 10 drachmas per citizen. And of course, that plan was put forth for a vote, and it, it looked like a done deal. And then Themistocles got up and headed for the podium. He had other ideas. He did not want Athenians to put the money into their pockets or into a new house or new furniture or other ways of making their lives easier that they might be planning. He wanted them to vote to put the money into building the biggest navy in the world. 200 triremes, in fact. To understand why that's such a big idea, you need to understand that the trireme was the height of technology of the day. And building such a fleet would not only take all of that excess silver, and probably more, but also a substantial amount of timber, flax for linen ropes, and brass, and other metals for fittings. It would consume many of the resources of the city for a number of years. And more importantly, providing crews for that fleet would require as many as, as 17,000 citizens. And at, remember, at the time, there were only 30,000. So Themistocles was really asking his fellow citizens to commit not just their ten drachmas, but themselves, and in fact probably their offspring, for an immense civic project would, that would take years to complete. Maybe the only thing that's more surprising than his proposal was the fact that they agreed to it. Despite the objections of another prominent politician, Aristides, the citizens of Athens voted to create a navy unlike any that existed at the time. And in so doing, they set the stage for Athens to become one of the preeminent cities of the Greek world. They ensured that the Greek civilization would survive an invasion by the Persian Empire a few years later, and that Athens would emerge from that conflict in a position of leadership, and that Athens would go on to lead a powerful maritime empire, and that Athens would become a seat of philosophy and culture, and that Athenians would export their new democratic form of government and effectively become what may many now consider to be the cradle of modern civilization. It is certainly fair to say that the world we live in today would probably look very different if the Athenians had not followed Themistocles that day. But why? Why did they agree to donate their current prosperity and their future efforts and livelihoods to this project? What did Themistocles say to the assembly that day? Well, we actually don't know. His words are not recorded. 
But I would not be surprised if he sounded a lot like another politician two and a half millennia later when he challenged his countrymen to endorse his vision for a massive civic project that would take them to a new frontier and thereby secure their place in history. And of course, the politician I'm talking about is John F. Kennedy. And that is where the story of Themistocles finally merges with the story of the Terranauts. Unlike Themistocles on that morning in Athens, when JFK took the stage at Rice University in Houston in July of 1962, he was not presenting his vision for the first time. As I noted in a previous episode, the president had presented his plans for NASA in a speech to Congress over a year before, but that speech was a fairly dry statement of policy and intent. It was not a motivational appeal to his fellow citizens to join him on the journey. But by July of 1962, President Kennedy knew that it was time to get the public behind his vision. And so he faced the audience that day and made his famous We Choose to Go to the Moon speech, in which he said, quote, We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept and one that we are unwilling to postpone, unquote. And in that moment, I think he appealed to the same instincts that Themistocles must have appealed to 2,500 years earlier. And this is what I call the collective power of the big idea. As human beings, we have a natural desire to do big things. But we have an even more basic instinct to do them together. We're a tribal species. Millennia of evolution have encoded in our genes the certainty that our success, and in fact our survival, depends on the success of our group. Making a contribution to the success of a group enterprise is one of the most satisfying things that we can do, and I believe that our physical and neurological biology makes that true. It is the same fundamental urge that keeps us checking our likes on social media posts, knowing not only that we're part of a group, but that we're making a contribution that is valued by that group, is an urge that is coded deep in our old brain. It is this fundamental urge, I would argue, that has made many of us Terranauts in the first place, and it is an addiction to scratching that fundamental itch that keeps us at it. It's certainly true for me. When I started working in the space business, it was in order to replace the income from my graduate scholarship that had expired two years into a four-year degree. My initial jobs were a little bit like my graduate research, and I certainly treated them that way. They were tasks that I could perform on my own. The results were, to some extent, divorced from the overall progress of any particular project, at least as far as I was aware. I checked in periodically and got advice and new direction, but I was not really part of the group effort. I remember the day when that changed. When my boss at the time told me that the company had finally opened its own office and that he expected me to actually come to the office on a regular basis to work. Bear in mind that this was 1992, and in order to work together, you actually did have to pretty much be physically co-located. 
the experience of being in an office changed everything. Understanding that the tasks I was working on were making a contribution to the whole project, and basically the whole company at the time, gave me a completely new appreciation for the job I was doing. It made me look more carefully at what I was doing, to wonder if it could be done better or in ways that could be of more help to the larger project. I suddenly started worrying about the big picture and wanting to come to work because I did. Of course, the real sea change came when I agreed to take a job at the Johnson Space Center. My boss, Paul, had offered me the job almost a year previously, and I remember that moment because I laughed at him. At the time, I thought I was going to continue to be an academic, to go on to do postdoctoral work and eventually become a professor. Six months later, having surveyed the postdoctoral prospects and compared them to my desires to both have a roof over my head and enough to eat, I had reconsidered. I also reconsidered because by that time I had started to work full-time in the office and to understand what we were really trying to do, which was to convince NASA and the Canadian Space Agency that our technology could be used to help build the space station. I didn't really know what any of that meant at the time, but I knew I wanted to be a part of it. The collective power of the big idea had drawn me in. And so I found myself handing in the final draft of my thesis and getting in the car with my wife, our two cats, and our worldly belongings and heading for Houston, Texas. But when I arrived at the Johnson Space Center, I found out what it was to really be caught up in the collective power of a big idea. Because if there was ever an organization that operated on that basis, it was NASA and the Johnson Space Center. There is an anecdote that is frequently passed around about how in the 1960s the measure of how dedicated NASA was to JFK's vision was that you could ask anyone in a JSC building, right down to the caretaker staff, what their job was, and they would tell you to send a man to the moon and bring him back safely. This is usually trotted out by the organizational behavior gurus who want to make a point about alignment in an organization, and I'm sure that it's an exaggeration, but not as much of one as you might think. I had an office at JSC, on site, in the middle of the robotics section of the Mission Operations Directorate. To work there was to work in the middle of a group of people who knew that their job was flying spacecraft for a living. They ate it, breathed it, they talked about it all the time, they lived it every single day. To work in that environment was suddenly to be captured by the concept that humans can and did leave the planet on a regular basis. They didn't do it by accident. They got there and they got home again because of the work that was done in that building, by everyone in that building. There were no unimportant roles or functions. No one could mail it in. The success of all depended on the efforts of everyone. This is a fact which is obvious to me now in hindsight. At the time, the realization dawned a little bit more slowly. At first, I treated the job a bit like grad school. I worked on my tasks and I checked in with others to get feedback. There were lots of challenges and challenges that were new to me 
and which I took a lot of satisfaction in meeting. But it slowly began to dawn on me that others were not only trusting me to get my bits right, but also depending on my work to make sure that their pieces of the project were successful as well. Within even a few weeks, I realized that these people really expected to build a space station in orbit, and they really expected that the work I was doing was going to help make that possible. Well, that was a realization that brought me up short. If there's anything that keeps you at your desk late into the evening, or that drives you from your bed to your computer in the middle of the night, it's the thought that others' efforts might be wasted if you don't get your part right. And of course, in the end, we did go on to build a space station on orbit. And the work that I did at JSC during that time was part of that effort. I cannot look at pictures of the space station without being reminded of that. Because it's covered in dots. You see, the black, or in some cases white, dots that cover the space station are only there because the system that I was helping to develop was actually used to assemble the space station. In fact, some of the dots are where they are because I did the calculation to decide where to put them. So every time I see those dots, I see the small individual contribution that I made to a really big idea that actually came to fruition. And that gives me a sense of satisfaction that is pretty hard to match. Actually, one of the moments of greatest satisfaction I had was not from looking at the real space station, but it came from looking at a fictional one. I was watching the movie The Martian uh, on an airline flight one time. And in the movie, there's a scene that involves a space station orbiting the Earth. And as part of kind of the establishing shot for that scene, there are images of the outside of the space station. And it has dots on it. The dots play no role in the plot of the movie. And I'm sure that the people who designed the models had no idea why there are dots on the real space station. But they just assumed that if you have a space station, it has to have black dots on it. As the realization dawned on me, I actually raised my hand in the touchdown symbol while sitting in my seat because I suddenly realized that I had, in some small way, been part of something that had literally become a pop culture icon. Because space stations have dots. Yes, they do. In part because of the job I did. Wow. Now, at the time when I started working on that project, the building of the space station was literally a decade in the future. There were many years, many successes, and many challenges between those days and the moment that I celebrated in that airline seat. And there are many vignettes from those days that have stayed with me, apart from simply the long hours, especially the long hours spent in meetings. You knew that had to come up on this podcast. For instance, I remember driving to the space center through flooded streets with the water actually coming over the hood of my car at times to get to a simulation session that involved the astronauts and which could not easily be post postponed and which really, really needed to go well. I remember having an astronaut show up for a morning simulator session and actually ask me if I had a home because the last time the crew had seen me was the afternoon before at the end of the previous training session and I was in exactly the same place. And that was because that session had not gone at all well, 
and it had generated a long list of crew squawks that really needed to be addressed before the next training session. So the sim operators and I had worked all evening to find the fixes and workarounds and had come in early in the morning to make sure they were working before the crew arrived. I remember traveling to the Kennedy Space Center for my first ever in-vehicle test or IVT while still suffering from the effects of Bell's palsy. In retrospect, I probably should have been on sick leave. The condition was, though, for me, not debilitating, but it, it wasn't comfortable. But knowing at the time that there was no one else who understood the equipment well enough to conduct this test, and knowing that all of the efforts of the entire development team would come to nothing if the test was not successful, I went. And I remember, later, at the end of a long day of testing, because once you get on board the space shuttle, it's a real pain to get off and get back on again, so you stay there. At any rate, I remember at the end of a long day, sitting on the mats on the floor on the mid-deck of the space shuttle, because my testing was complete, and I was in my bunny suit and masked up, and the KSC engineers were completing their closeout activity that was necessary so that all of us could leave the shuttle at the end of the shift. And then I remember thinking that the wall, the bulkhead that I was leaning against, was actually the hull of a spacecraft, and that in barely two months' time from that day, it would be the only thing between five humans and the void of space. And I do remember thinking clearly at that moment that fatigue, hunger, and partial facial paralysis notwithstanding, there was really nowhere else in the world you could have paid me any money to be at that moment. Because at that moment I was feeling the collective power of the big idea to feel that I was a constructive part of something that was so much bigger than I was and which was so incredibly exceptional, was something that spoke to my deepest human urges. And in the time since then, I have seen countless other people respond to the same basic urge, to be part of something larger than themselves and to make a positive contribution to it. I have seen people accomplish amazing things, to focus their abilities and their faculties and their talents on problems that genuinely seemed insoluble until, of course, they were solved. For instance, I remember a time later uh, on a later program when a team of engineers from NACPEC traveled to KSC to install the new orbiter boom sensor system camera. Um, this was a sensor that NASA was going to use on the first flight after the Columbia disaster to make sure that there was no damage to the shuttle's thermal protection system that would prevent re-entry because, of course, that is what had caused the Columbia disaster. The whole system was a complicated assemblage of various pieces that had already mostly been designed for other tasks. Spare parts from the original Canadarm, sensors that had been designed for other purposes, wiring and connectors and electronics that had been adapted for a use that no one knew existed barely a year before. It had been built this way because it was the only way to get the space shuttle back up and flying in a relatively short period of time. Not addressing the problem would have meant that the shuttle could not fly safely. Taking too long to solve it 
would probably have meant that Congress and the public would have run out of patience before NASA got to try it. So talk about being part of a project with a large group of people with a tough job that really, really has to work. At any rate, this test at KSC was actually the first chance to assemble the whole orbiter boom sensor system because it literally could not be assembled other than on the space shuttle. And then it didn't work. When all of the pieces were put together, the sensors could not communicate properly with the control station. Neither of the sensors could be made to function properly. The team from NEPTEC and from NASA and from the other contractors spent probably 24 hours straight probing and testing and scoping and eventually determined that there was an electrical interference or crosstalk between all of the various electronics at the end of the boom. And we were simply trying to fit too many round pegs into too few square holes, and it was not working. But, undaunted and with enough data in hand, the team sat down on the spot and redesigned the cabling and the connectors to overcome the problem. The only issue was that a whole new cable and connector would have to be designed, approved, manufactured and tested, then installed and tested to make sure that A, it fixed the problem, and B, it didn't break anything that was already working, and oh yes, there was only about a week to get that done in order to meet the launch schedule. And as I learned early on, time tied and the space shuttle wait for no one. But it got done. In truth, in retrospect, I'm not even sure how. Because for anyone who has worked on a program like the space shuttle for an organization like NASA, will understand how many people had to make a personal commitment to getting it done for it to be successful. From the machine shop where we placed the emergency order and literally stood there while they manufactured the pieces, to the NEPTEC engineers and quality control staff who designed and built the new cable and connectors, to the NASA engineers and other contractor engineers who approved the design and reviewed the test results, to the whole crew that worked back at KSC to get it installed again and prove that this time it worked. It was a tiny but massive effort that required everyone involved to lose sleep, take risks, and trust people that they did not know except by reputation. And they did it because the collective effort demanded it. They did it because they knew they could make that effort succeed. And it did. Ultimately, the OBSS camera system flew on every mission after the Columbia disaster. And on every mission, it was used to survey the outside of the shuttle and give flight controllers, mission managers, and astronauts the confidence that it was safe to come home in their spacecraft. So why does all of this matter? Why go all the way back to Themistocles just to tell some war stories about my time in the space business? Well, no. Well, not really. It's because I guess I want to say that there is a reason why I am here talking about being a Terranaut, and I assume why you're listening to me talk about it. The endeavor of going to space embodies that collective power of the big idea that speaks to something fundamental in our nature in the way that a lot of other things don't. Space is not the only way to do this, and there are lots of ways that humans act collectively to accomplish big things. But going to space to do practically anything is always going to be one of those things. Because, 
space is hard because no one gets to space alone, it always requires a group effort. And because space will always be a place where there will be big ideas that require collective action to achieve. Because space will always be a place where humans choose to do what is hard because it's hard. Because we know that going to space will force us to organize and measure ourselves against the best of what we think we can be. And because in accepting those challenges, we will connect with something fundamental in our humanity, just like the Athenians did on that hilltop two and a half thousand years ago. Okay, that's going to do it for today's episode of Terranauts. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to support the podcast, please feel free to rate uh, and review us on your podcast service, to recommend us to a friend, or to respond with some feedback. And in particular, if you have some feedback about a time that the collective power of a big idea captured you, I would really like to hear about it here. Maybe we can put together an episode where we talk to some Terranauts who had that same experience. For now, that's going to be all for me, and we'll talk to you soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.